You are most welcome back to this video and I am so pleased to welcome back Dr. Claire Craig. Um, we gave her quite a grilling last time, but she still agreed to come back. So Claire, thank you so much. Thank you very much for having me back on, John. I've enjoyed it very much. Good. And a lot of people have been appreciating your book, Claire. It, it, it does bring great clarification uh, into the chaos of the of the last few years and it uh, re reading it really does seem to really does seem to make sense so last time actually we only covered two chapters uh, but that that's fine people appreciate the detail and people particularly appreciate the uh, the, the background science that you're putting into this and the psychology that, that really really to me makes makes sense of what is otherwise a, a superficially bizarre uh, stream of events but I want to start off with belief three, if you don't mind, this morning, Claire, please. Um, and the, the belief is project fear. People really believe this. I remember calculating my chances of dying. And uh, the, the question is, COVID would likely kill me. Um, just before we go on to that, um, should we just mention about the relationship between our society and death? Is, is, do you think it's a dysfunctional relationship? Yeah, I think that's a very good starting point, John, that, you know, we we have sort of sanitized death over the centuries and, and it's very separate often to how we live. And, and it didn't always used to be like that. You know, people used to keep somebody who had died at the home for a while and people would come and view. And and, and that when you see somebody who's died, who you love, you know, you get this sort of different view of death and you sort of see that the... Um, when somebody dies and their, their sort of spirit leaves them with that last breath and you have this very, you know, a corpse isn't them. It's not them mm. anymore. It's something's missing. And you see, when you see that, you can sort of have a different view of what dying means and also of what happens to us after death. But we've, having made it very medicalized, people um, almost have a very protective instinct over a corpse. You know, we have a culture where um, post-mortems, for example, are um, often people tread on eggshells around it because they're, they're scared of upsetting family. And, and we, the number we do has reduced massively because of that idea that you have to be very respectful of a corpse. Um, and and I, I, mean, I am, <laughs> I'm not suggesting you shouldn't be, but there is a sort of pragmatic line where you say, actually, this isn't very good to anybody, this body anymore. It's not, it's not helping the person who was alive, they've gone. But there's information there that we could learn if we were to examine it more thoroughly and to do a post-mortem. And so that's the idea, the approach I've always taken to post-mortems is that actually, you know, if you do study it and look and dissect it all very carefully, you can learn more that can help the people who are alive. And I think that's a really important thing to be doing. But we, you know, we just don't do it very often. And that was a problem way before COVID times. But COVID made it worse. So the Coronavirus Act introduced different ways around death reporting um, that made it much easier for a doctor that didn't particularly know what happened with a patient to still be able to do a death certificate if they sort of could. So the, the, you don't have to know exactly everything about why someone died in order to write a death certificate. The, the GMC regulations say that you need to be able to do it to a doctor's the best of the doctor's knowledge and belief. So to the best of what I know and believe, this is why this person died. It, does, it doesn't even give you an obligation to go and discover everything that you could know 
It's just with based on what I do know, this is why they died. And you know what? That's sort of okay if you've got a system where everyone acknowledges that the purpose of a death certificate is not to give a definitive answer. And, you know, if people are saying, well, we have a death certificate system so that people get a broad view of why somebody died and that we might get a sort of broad brush feel for public health issues, but we're not trying to diagnose death. And we took this system that was only really based on that and pretended it was accurately diagnosing death when it just couldn't. I mean, just unpack a little bit, Claire, the, the, the difference. So you, you've got a GP who might waltz in and see a patient for 10 minutes a few times a day before, the, before they die, or even a hospital doctor who's only been with them for, for sometimes minutes or, or maybe just a day or two before they die. How much more, and, and you're a pathologist, you can actually do the post-mortem, you can look at the science, you can put it under the microscope. How much more accurate is your diagnosis as a pathologist than a clinical doctor's diagnosis? So it very much depends on the situation. You know, sometimes the clinical doctors are, uh, are better than us, right? There are occasions when some of the imaging techniques are, are so detailed and precise that they can um, show things that actually it's quite hard to show at dissection. So, you know, they, they, it's, it's not like one's better than the other all the time. But when people have done studies where they've sort of deliberately um, done audits of what doctors and clinicians believe they knew and they got consent from the relatives and said well actually let's just check this at postmortem see if there's anything else that you missed the, 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 I can't remember the exact figures but it was quite concerning that, that the confidence that doctors had based on what they you know the blood tests and the imaging was a little bit too high and that there is absolutely room for doubt and there is a, there is very much room for auditing so that doctors get feedback and learn and, and realize the limitations of what, what, you know, what can be very, very impressive looking in, by way of testing, but actually isn't always perfect. Mm -hmm. And of course, the, the, the whole nature of biomedical science is, is predicated on dissection, really, isn't it? I mean, going, going back to Henry Gray and Gray's Anatomy and people that drew the pictures way back in John Hunter and all these early all these early pioneers, the reason we know what we know is because we can relate that to anatomy and then relate that to physiology. And the only way you're going to know that is by, well, as you say, there's modern imaging techniques now, but it's all predicated on this, on, on this basic dissection that is necessary. And um, I mean, I'll just comment on a couple of your points there, Claire. Claire. I, 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 didn't, I didn't see a body till I was 18. Um, so, you know, relatives died. Um, I wasn't allowed to see the body. Um, when I was 18, first year student, psychiatric nurse, I actually remember the names of the patients, that, the first patients that died from all those years ago. And um, you do get that impression that the person is simply not there. Um, even in the minutes after death, um, that, that's there. And, um, uh, you know, m many, many times we've um, d done a laying out procedure with, with junior student nurses, maybe 18, 19 year old young people. And, and, and they say that they, they often, you know, they've often said, well, the person's not there, are they, John? You know, and, uh, and we, have, we, have, we have this ludicrous tradition in, in nursing where you open the window to, to let the spirit out, which is 
it's kind of quaint but you know it goes back for hundreds of years but but the point is that the person has left and uh yeah you know I mean, there's one thing that that really struck me when i was writing the book actually which is a little bit of etymology so um the the word expired is from that you know the latin um, expirare and inspirare and all the, all of those words are related but in um in latin expirare is is expiration of the spirit it's not just breath and so spirit and breath are actually the same word yeah, originally yeah. and so yeah. the phrase to take your last breath or your last breath leaving the body if you were saying that in latin you would say the spirit left the body and so you know that kind of really makes sense when you see it happen and actually I, my I, my father died in october 2022 and i was with him when that happened and then you know his his last few breaths were quite you know they they went he went very gradually very peacefully and they they separated in time and then the last breath left him and his you know immediately his face is sunk and everything's you know he's suddenly he's not then doesn't look the same he just didn't look the same he had gone something had gone um and actually a little bit more etymology is the word autopsy right so the word autopsy means to see for yourself and that is like so fundamental to science is that the whole point of science is that you are very aware of when you're making assumptions, you know, which bits have got evidence and which bits is you sort of bridging the gaps, trying to make a picture so that you're constantly trying to find out where you're wrong. And um, people lost that a little bit recently. And, and the, the reason that postmortems are so important and the reason that, as you said, that medicine was built on the, from dissection is because you learn by constantly going back and looking at what the evidence shows and then from there trying to make sense of the world. And, and that was really hammered into me when I was training to be a pathologist. And it wasn't just about autopsies, it's also about what you're looking at down the microscope. But you, you might find a few things and you can very quickly jump from those few things to a diagnosis that would fit that pattern. And then you feel like you've done something and you've you know, ticked a box and I was always being dragged back and saying, no, stop, keep looking, just keep looking until you've really absorbed everything that's there before you jump to any conclusions. And I think that's where everybody failed so badly on this one. Mm. And it's such a protection for the public as well. It's like, like the coroner system in this country, you know, since, since medieval, since Magna Carta, it's been a protection for the public. And you just get the feeling that that level of protection, that if someone bumps me off, someone's going to find out about it. I just get the feeling I'm not as well protected as I was five, six years ago. I think it's probably longer than that. So really, it has been a long time when we haven't been doing many postmortems. And to be fair, people did do postmortems on COVID patients, right? So the Royal College of Pathologists had an audit of around 40 detailed postmortems of people who died um, after COVID diagnosis. And they were showing what this looked like, where the pathology was, you know, people. And so pathologists were doing this. But on the other hand, there were also pathology departments that just stopped doing autopsies altogether for the period. So, you know, there was there was a huge variation in what was going on. Um, and as I said, the law changed. Right. So prior, you'd have a, a doctor would have had to have seen a patient in life um, before being able to make a death certificate. But the Coronavirus Act said that they either had to have seen them in life or after death. You know, well, that, that's not telling you the full story, is it? Seeing, seeing a corpse after death, just literally just seeing it, is not enough to tell you why somebody died. And 
And, and that was combined with a situation where you know, we had people who were phoning up care homes and speaking to the staff there about why somebody had died, and that became the basis of the death certificate, which is not a thorough enough investigation. It's not, that's not how it should have been done. No. And then that brings in all the other variables, like what medications they'd been given. Had they been given midazolam? Had they been given morphine? Mm -hmm. well, exactly. So-called end-of-life drugs. Yeah, and, you know, people were prescribing at a distance and then certifying at a distance. And, and you know, there was, there was no protection there for the people who potentially could have been, you know, either neglected or harmed in some way. I mean, I, I've, ta I've talked to nurses working in care homes who have put their, their own phone by the patient's bed. The GPs made the diagnosis, prescribed end-of-life drugs based on um, a mobile phone conversation. It's just... To me, to me it ju it ju I just find it totally incredible that we could go so far away from the principles that we were trained on and that I trained student nurses on for all these years, that we could just ignore these principles of communication, which is fundamental to the healthcare relationship. Um, the Project Fear thing, Claire, the, 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 there was selective coverage from mainstream media. So we had reporters going into intensive care units. Now, you know, we had, we had cameras... You know, the, the the Heart Lane incident in New York, the, the burial island for poor people in New York. I mean, I mean, do, do you think the but what, what, what we didn't get was reporters going into a, a home where someone had had a mild COVID and had fully recovered? Do you think this gave a pretty distorted it, picture? Absolutely. I mean, if you think about it the other way around, you think, oh, could they have made this look any worse? I really yeah. don't know what else they'd have done. Yeah. Really, honestly, don't. So, yes, they were filming the trenches on Heart Island in New York. So Heart Island is a place where forever um, they have buried in mass graves people who couldn't afford funerals. And um, there were more burials like that in 2020 than in previous years, but not loads more. So there were over a thousand in 2018, there were just over 2000 in 2020. And that means, you know, that when you look at that, you think, well, that means they could at any time go and film those mass graves and scare people because they were always happening. They were always there. And that difference does not account for the 27,000 extra deaths that are alleged to have happened in New York. And we had New York officials tweeting at one point, the tweet got retracted, but he tweeted into public saying that they were going to have to use um, New York public parks as burial grounds because that's how bad it was going to get. Um, so, yeah, that was really scary. Of course, people were scared by that. And then we also had the BBC, you know, whenever there was somebody young who died, the cameras would all point at that young person and there would never be any caveats about the fact that this was mainly a problem of the elderly dying or at least older people dying. You know, the young one at minimal risk, but if there was ever any link that could be drawn, then there was massive attention put to it. Now, I, I'm going to not remember the boy's name, but you, do you remember the 13-year-old boy called Ishmael somebody? I can't remember his name. So the press did put a lot of attention on a 13-year-old who died in the UK, who was buried alone. His family weren't allowed to attend the funeral because they were isolating because he'd had COVID. Mm. And this was absolutely heart-wrenching at the time. Um, and then last year, it was revealed at an inquest that the reason this 13-year-old boy had died tragically was because of 
the doctor trying to get the tube into his trachea missing. And so it was, it was a horrible medical accident that was the result that he resulted in him dying. It was not COVID killing him, but it was reported as if COVID had killed this 13-year-old boy. And, and you know, more attention was given to that death than to so many other deaths that were much, much more representative. And so, yeah, there was this massive distortion in terms of what went on. The, I mean, the other massive distortion, was, of course, was when women who were pregnant or had just given birth died with a positive COVID test, because that's incredibly heart-wrenching. You know, just to ever think about a mother dying at that point is, is just so emotive. Um, but the fact is that women do die around that period, and they have often pregnant women or recently pregnant women who die have respiratory problems because a lot of the complications of pregnancy lead to respiratory problems. And in the past, a number would have been attributed to influenza. And, and you know, whether or not it's caused by influenza or it's just that they've got a pneumonia and they're run down and they're on ITU and influenza's in ITU and it, they test positive. It's a similar situation. And, you know, COVID may also have made it worse for pregnant women. But it wasn't so much worse. You know, the numbers involved were tiny. And the emphasis was just so completely perverse and distorted because you know, because they're heart-wrenching, because of the emotional draw. I mean, we could do that with anything, couldn't we? I mean, we, you know, we, we could have a national monitoring campaign for anaphylactic reactions to ibuprofen, you know, brufen, a simple anti-inflammatory. You know, and we could zoom off with film teams and say, well, this, this, this is Anna. She took an ibuprofen and then 10 minutes later she was itchy and her skin turned red and she had to be admitted to hospital for adrenaline. You know, you could do that, but it doesn't give a balanced view. You know, we've got people taking ibuprofen all over the world, all the time for, for a bad knee or whatever it is. You know, we, we, we could do this distorted. Yes, totally. And I think you know, it's anything. really important to, to, for people to understand that. Although the word flu is always like bandied around as something that people complain too much about, it is a lethal problem and that people have always died of it. And it used to be called the Old man's friend, didn't it? The GPs would call well, it the old new, man's Pneumonia was, yeah. Right. Yeah. So, you know, that, that, that it was disproportionately people near the end of life mm. where that was the last sort of thing that, yeah. that tipped them over the edge. Yeah, yeah. But young people, even children, would die of influenza every single year. And it, it's horrible. It's really, really tragic. And when you've seen that, you know, it, it's just, you, you, you can't ever think of the word influenza in quite the same way. But that does not mean that the public are wrong to dismiss it because the risk to any individual is absolutely tiny. And so to just, you know, live your life, not worrying about influenza is the right thing to do. But, you know, that doesn't mean that it never didn't, you know, never caused harm. It did cause harm. And so when you don't realize that influenza had always killed people, then when a new respiratory virus comes along that seems to take the place of influenza, you're not subtracting what would have gone on before in order to make a fair, a fair assessment of what this new one means. If this new one was treated as if it was something completely different to the respiratory winter viruses we see every year, and it wasn't. It was, it was just a different label for what had always gone on before. And there were absolutely years where influenza deaths created you know, the sort of excess mortality that we've seen in 2020 with COVID deaths. 
Um, you know, 1989 was a terrible year. 1991 was a terrible year. The year 2000 was a really bad year. And, and yet we just sort of lived with it because that's what you do. And also with influenza, the, the death toll would be reset. You'd have a season of influenza deaths and then you'd say, right, one to the next one and we'd start again. With COVID, mm. counting never stops. It will never, ever stop. It's just always going to be added in. Such, such a simple point, but I hadn't really thought of that. Yeah. 1991, I had influenza and uh, I came home from work. I wasn't feeling well. I thought I'd go up to bed. And uh, I made it to the bedroom floor. I couldn't get into bed. I was lying on the bedroom floor thinking, well, if I die now, that would be fine. And I felt I felt so, I think it's the illest I can remember feeling. It was terrible. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. it took, a couple of hours later, I sort of just about managed to get into bed and I just felt so ill. It was unbelievable. Well, the thing it's is- It's not a minor you, illness. Yeah, when you realize that that is how you, a healthy person can be made to feel. Yeah. And then you realize that there are people who are not that healthy who are getting these infections. Yeah. Then, you, then you sort of start to sort of make more sense of it because the reality is that a lot of the people who died with a COVID diagnosis, that was the last straw for them. And for those people, you know, when you've had relatives die slowly, obviously some people die quite quickly, but when you've had relatives die slowly, you see how they get to a point where their reserve is so low yeah that any, you know, urinary tract infection it might be, or a, you know, or a cold is enough to tip them over the edge. But the question then is, well, why are we calling that last insult the cause of death? That shouldn't be the cause of death and somebody you know is dying from something else. That is just the tipping point. I, I mean, when, if we started registering every urinary tract infection that caused a frail to have their, you know, to be tipped over the edge, then we would have this epidemic of urinary tract infections, which would just be utterly ludicrous. Um, and w what happened with COVID was ludicrous. So we had a situation where there were 3,000 people who died in hospices. So their deaths were very, very expected, whose deaths were attributed to COVID. Like, this is not, it doesn't make sense. You know, it's as if nobody has really stopped to think about what a death certificate should be telling you in terms of a time frame. Now, do we want to know what caused that person to die on Tuesday instead of Thursday? Or do we want to know what caused them to die this year and not last year? And, and that's a completely different answer. Seeing so many people die days or a week or two after hip fractures, mm. so common in the elderly. Um, maybe less so now with the internal fixations, but it was really common. We used to see, but we didn't, we didn't say they died of a hip fracture. No. Was, although that was the trigger of the death. I think there's a wider issue here, Claire, the, the effects of fear on belief. Um, yeah. Do you think that was a major factor? And yeah, the, I do. Fear, I fear do. affects what we believe. I think that's true. Yeah. And I think, you know, I, I wasn't sort of, I experienced it myself, you know, I was scared at the beginning. And so having been scared, you sort of notice how your behavior changes around that. So I was hooked on the news and we'd go and try and get the latest death count each evening, my husband and I. And I remember it really vividly. I remember that period in April where every day we were looking and it wasn't yet lower. You know, it sort of plateaued for a few days before the first day when the number of deaths were lower, we were like, oh, finally. And you sort of sent, feel this sense of relief over a number on the news. Um, and, and so you, when you're occupied, like when your brain's occupied with fear, you're looking 
to check for danger because that's what we're designed to do in an evolutionary perspective. You know, if there is a sense of fear, you have to keep checking for danger. And if you find evidence of danger, like a number on the news, then you can say, right, I'm, I'm right, then I should be scared. And you reinforce that fear. Um, and the analogy that I use in the book is actually a slightly strange one, which is about falling in love. That when, you, when you're sort of infatuated with somebody, your brain is on a different gear, it's on a different level. <laughs> and you end up with these intrusive thoughts that you're, you know, just out the blue intrusive thoughts and obsessive thinking. And I think you get the same when, you're, when your brain is on the fear level. Yeah. You have a, a, intrusive thoughts that, you know, you're just busy doing something and then suddenly you're scared again. Um, and you start to obsess about any little thing that you might be able to do about it. And we somehow sort of got obsessive compulsive disorder as a world, all at the same time. And it's horrible seeing how many people are still suffering from that. They're still in that place all these years later. It's fascinating. I won't go into it, but mass psychosis is a fascinating mm. area, mass psychiatric illness. I think just before we leave this one, I think shame was another one, Claire, wasn't it? People were told oh. not to infect their granny and kill them. Oh, absolutely. Uh, shame was completely manipulated. In, in, yeah, absolutely. And manipulated is the word, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. And, and there was this feeling, I think, uh, you know, rational people I would talk to who kind of understood that, you know, probably some of these things they were doing probably weren't going to be working. And they also fully understood that they were not at risk themselves, particularly. But they were doing it all because they were worried about being accused of spreading it to someone else. So it was the embarrassment and the shame that if somebody else they knew caught it and they were responsible or thought to be responsible, they'd be, why weren't you doing this? Why weren't you wearing your mask? Why weren't, you know? So they were just, they were going to obey everything just in case they'd be embarrassed. Mm -hmm. A bit like some politicians, really. But, but mo mo moving on. <laughs> so uh, belief four, Claire, um, death certificates are never wrong. We've partly covered that, but uh, investigating deaths, not for resuscitation, things like that. What was uh, what was going on that death certificates are never wrong? Are death certificates never wrong? Well, no, <laughs> we have covered that a little bit already. Yeah. yeah. Um, so th th I think the biggest problem in that regard was what happened in that first COVID winter. So we had a situation where there were 40,000 deaths from other causes so deaths from cancers and from heart failures and from all the usual causes which were not recorded in the data. 40,000 of them. In, and when this happened, what you'd see is that there'd be each week there'd be more COVID deaths and more missing deaths and more COVID deaths and more missing deaths until you got to peak COVID deaths. And that was the week of peak missing deaths. And then they both returned back to zero. So there was clearly something going on here where deaths from other causes were being called COVID deaths and treated as if it was all a catastrophe and disaster and we were doing so much worse than everywhere else. Um, whereas everywhere else was recording COVID deaths in a manner that equated pretty um, accurately with excess mortality. So the you know, every time there were extra deaths labelled as COVID, this was actually fitting quite neatly with excess mortality. And actually that's what's happened here subsequently. So we did a lot of shouting about this problem with diagnosis and over time, People, the doctors seem to have taken something on board subliminally and got better at diagnosis. And then there was this match again between excess deaths and what they're calling COVID deaths. Um, so, yeah, I think there was huge overdiagnosis that first winter. And that meant 
huge inflation of the fear because the numbers are so much higher than they ought to have been. And some of the stories around that really are laughable. So um, one contact I know who is a consultant in the A&E department, he told me this story of going in to relieve the night staff the first thing in the morning. And one of them, he said he was just exhausted. It was just, you know, really, really exhausted. And he said, look, you, you go off. So what happened? So we sort of heard the story of the night, including this tragic story of a person in their 50s who'd come in with a burst aneurysm on their brain. So they'd had a massive brain hemorrhage that was lethal. He hadn't come in dead. You know, they'd tried their best, got him into a, a CT scanner alive, but it was too late and he died in their department. So we had to go and do the death certificate. So the consultant said, look, you know, hand over me this other stuff. You go and do that death certificate and then you get yourself off to bed. And he said, well, I can't do the death certificate. We haven't had the COVID test back yet. <laughs> and like, that was, that was the, you know, that was the world we were living in. But, Blown aneurysm on the CT scan, which yeah. is completely obvious. What, what yeah. CT scans are good at is showing blood in the brain. That's what they show. Yeah, uh, yeah. But it's, just like a barn door, yeah. absolutely clear cut cause of death, you know, that was in no way related to a respiratory virus. And, they, and that's what he said. And you're like, well, this is just insanity. It's complete insanity where you can't diagnose a death at all without a COVID result. It really is hard to explain why so much distorted thinking affected so many highly intelligent, highly educated professionals. It really is a, a strange phenomena. In, in this chapter, Claire, death certificates are never wrong. You talk about extrapolate, excuse, exclude. What, what, what do we mean by extrapolate, excuse and exclude? This was just me sort of looking at how the arguments would always go. Um, and that um, we were sort of touched upon it a little bit when we were talking about how you have to keep looking at the evidence and seeing which are your assumptions. And people were extrapolating massively from a little bit of evidence to say something that was really, you know, far too extreme, that was not really based on that evidence anymore, which I'd call extrapolating. Yeah. Um, and then when there was evidence that contradicted people's position, they'd find an excuse for ignoring it or saying it was wrong or that it was biased or, you know, whatever else. Um, and, you know, I'm guilty of doing that too. I think we all, we all do that mm. to form a case, um, but you need to be aware that you're doing that. I think that's what's really important. Um, and then expunge is where people, you know, have a face with something that they just want to ignore because, or exclude, I called it in the end, didn't I? Because um, it does contradict them. It's good sound evidence that contradicts them. And that kind of evidence is just getting censored. You know, you just wouldn't hear it. It would just not, it would, that would not be heard because it would be contrary to the narrative. Just, just didn't make the cut, yeah. 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 Now, in this chapter as well, you've got a section on changing minds, which I found particularly, uh, particularly interesting. Uh, you talk about things like uh, funding bias and uh, people having difficulty changing their minds. Maybe talk about the funding bias first, Claire. What, what, what is the issue with, with funding? So, I mean, it, it's a really, really tricky one, this, because I don't have solutions particularly to the problem. But we have a, um, in science, you can't be a scientist unless you've got money to do the work. And so that money has to come from somewhere. And like the large, large swathes of medical research is, are funded either by the Wellcome Trust or by the Medical Research Council, which is government funded. 
But, you know, there are other sources of, of funding, but those are the two biggies. And what you find is that the people who are making the decisions about whether, how that, that money should be allocated have got their own interests. Of course, everybody has their own interests. And, and so people will work up the sort of scientific hierarchies until they're in a position where they're in control of the pot of money, or at least have great influence over that pot of money. And so there is a disincentive to fund people who might show up these, you know, sort of the people at the top of the pile for having made mistakes in their career. Now, of course, they've made mistakes in their career. You could ask them that and they would be very open about it. And they would say face to face with you that, of, you know, they have, would highly expect some of the things they'd found to change over time because that will happen. And that's absolutely fine. And, you know, they have the maturity to say that they accept that scientists in the future will find new things. But in a room with the pot of money, they don't want to be funding those people undermining their life's work. Of course they don't, because, you know, it's not going to look good for them when that happens. And so even if it's a really unconscious bias, it's a bias that exists. And in America, it's been the most extreme situation where Fauci has headed up the NAIAID part of... Massive, uh, massive levels of control and power. Yeah, but he's an old man. <laughs> he's been in that position as director there for as long as some people's entire medical careers. So, you know, the, so the, the Max Planck expression that I was saying to you last time, that sort of, you know, science moves on one funeral at a time, you, you, that is a real problem if you've got this sort of very... Um, stagnant hierarchical structures of power and institutions within science it is antithetical to science which has to be disruptive there is and you know that what's really sad is people have done studies on how much disruption there is in science and it's just gone through the floor so you can tell if something is disruptive if a paper gets referenced a lot because it becomes a new paradigm so everyone's back to that paper saying well this was the one that showed us this and the number of papers that achieve that has just been declining and declining and declining. Um, and so that, you know, that's proof, really, that we've got a problem with our scientific structures. And it, like the, the sort of more extreme uh, model that, that I'm not saying we should go back to, but as a contrast, it's worth discussing, is what the Victorians did, where they didn't have any of these structures and they didn't have a way of funding money. And a lot of scientists would just be sort of sponsored by a rich person who, as a sort of they'd own a hobby scientist as their as a you know a way of contributing to society uh, alfred russell wallace springs to mind he was paid by rich collectors yeah yeah and, and i mean that's that's got its own issues in terms of influence um but they would also have prize money so there would be you know for instance the longitude problem was solved mm. by a massive prize and the john harrison who won that he was um you know, he was a, a, a clock worker and a woodworker, but he was doing it sort of in the back, in the garage equivalent of the time. And so, you know, he was really properly disruptive and came up with fantastic solutions, but all because the funding was totally unbiased, totally unbiased. It just wanted the solution. It didn't it took them care. a long time to cough up, but they did eventually. And he, he was an old man by the time he got the money. Mm -hmm. But uh, but no, no, the, it's, 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 a, it's a very good point. And Really, the, the big changes in science do come from paradigm shift. It's not a nibble here and a nibble there and a nibble there and a little bit there and a little bit there. You know, if you think about the big developments in science, I mean, plate tectonics springs to mind, where, where people believed in the fixity of continents. Then all of a sudden, 
It took decades for the evidence for the continents drifting around the place to come. And then all it changed almost overnight. There was like a paradigm shift. Mm. Or Albert Einstein um, um, you know, coming out with the relativity ideas, 1905. Again, a complete paradigm shift in, in physics. And then even, even in Einstein's life himself, people like uh, Niels Bohr coming out with... Uh, and. Uh, that guy in Copenhagen, I can't remember his name, um, coming out with uh, quantum quantum physics. Um, uh, you know, again, and this and Einstein didn't like it at all. Yeah. <laughs> he, didn't, he, did, he did not like quantum physics. Yeah, what yet, you, it, sorry. Well, it shows, what it shows with, an aspect of truth. Oh, totally. And um, what you've seen with COVID is that this this sort of hierarchical structures and the, and the power of the institutions have filtered really massively into the literature. So it, I mean, it's quite astonishing when you when you read any almost any COVID paper, and there's this kind of thing at the beginning where they sort of have to recite the scripture. You know, this is a very dangerous virus; it's killed this many people before they're allowed to say anything about their research. But very, very often, I can come up with quite a number of papers where people have found important results. And so the results section is, you know, really important, and the method section seems completely honest. But the introduction, the abstract and the results have no bearing on what these scientists found. And it's almost like they have to sort of recite the scriptures and say the lines and present it in this distorted way. And then they get it published. And at least the results are out there. But it's really perverse. It's really, really perverse when you see it. Yeah, you can't book the narrative at the moment. The last one on this point, what's the difference between political truth and scientific truth, Claire? <laughs> It's not an unfair question. Yeah, well, I just I sort of see politics as being the opposite of science. That politics, <laughs> yeah. politicians are salesmen ultimately. That's what they are, yeah. Yeah, and they yeah. need a story yeah. they can sell. And when they sell it, they need you know it needs to be sort of true. It's their truth. This is what they're, the platform they're standing on. They can't have doubt. Doubt is bad for politics. It just makes them look weak. It makes them look like they indecisive, unsure. So yeah, they, they want certainty. And science is the opposite of certainty. Science is where the doubt, the doubt lies. And so when you've got this problem of science being owned by politicians, then it, it, it becomes horribly distorted. And you know, as we touched on last time, the last kind of big the last big example I have of that happening in science, at least in biology, was the germ theory story, where you know that was so politicised that that it, it became extreme. And so the result of the politicisation is that people on either side of the argument entrench at these extreme positions, yeah. and both sides lose all the nuance. This yeah. completely lose the nuance. Um, and you know I think that's exactly what we had with COVID that when people are not being heard, they shout louder and they and they exaggerate and and then they're more easily dismissed and it becomes even more separated and entrenched. And we're seeing this in so many, I'm not going to go into it now, but so many aspects of political thinking where we just see extreme positions, people living in their own echo chambers, hearing more and more about their own extreme positions and there the twain shall meet. And it's not a healthy, not a healthy situation, I don't think. No, I totally agree. And I, I mean, I just go, you just wonder how on earth you get out of it. You know, how do you reintroduce nuance when if you say something nuanced, people sort of go, yeah, OK, whatever. But I'm not going to get excited and share that because that's yeah. sort of slightly dull. I know the answer <laughs> to that one, Claire. We listen to people like you 
Uh, and uh, we, we talk about proper science and proper empiricism and proper evidence base. That is the that is the, the, the right, way to John. do it. And actually, I think people are getting sick of the hyperbole. Yeah. I think that you know you just actually can't sustain hyperbole for that long. Yeah. And so maybe that's right. Maybe we just keep talking about, you know, relatively dull nuance and people will come <laughs> yeah. and listen because they just want some sanity. This is not remotely dull. It's making sense of the, the insanity <laughs> of the past few years, which is, is brilliant. Belief five, Claire, uh, a new variant spells doom. Right. Yeah. Tell us about variants, first of all, maybe. Is, is this unique to the COVID virus? So, yeah, OK, so that with influenza, you know, there were changes in the virus over time. And um, if you go back to 1968 and 1957, the public health officials were really scared because there was this big shift in the genetics of influenza, which meant that it became a novel virus, yeah. but novel being meaning some of it was new, not all of it. There's a little part of it looked new to the human immune system but the human immune system does you know coped with it because it, it, it as we said last time you know it's got a load of different strategies um anyway they the public health officials were worried and you know along comes this new strain of influenza and then um passes through the population and then it comes back the following year as the equivalent of a variant and then the and you know passes through a few more and then so on and so on so it's worked its way through and so what's happened in the meantime, of course, is that viruses are constantly mutating. So whether or not it's the, the viral genetics that allowed it to surge, this is the, sort of that's the kind of official view is the virus mutates. It gets to a point where it can evade the immune system and it's, you know, it's now it's now primed to for another attack and off goes another wave. But in reality, the virus is mutating all of the time. And the variants that we've seen cause spikes often have been around for many, many months, not causing any kind of a surge. So, you know, we know that already. So I think the surging is to do with all sorts of other factors that we talked about last time. They Seasonality. Sort of, exactly. And if it's not the season, then how come it's always peak in January? If it's just the genetics, it wouldn't always be peak in January. So there's other things causing the surge. And then whatever the virus looks like at that time becomes the new variant because it will have changed since the last time when it when a surge occurs. Um, and there was actually with Omicron, there were two waves of BA1, if you remember. So yeah. that kind of confirms that that theory that BA1 was still the one knocking about. But there were two separate surges because it was other things that were causing the surges and the falls. Um, so, yeah, so I think the variant story was really, really hyped up. Scarians, they were called, weren't they? Scarians. Yeah. And I think yeah. that's I mean, what... Is it true that a new variant could increase transmissibility and pathogenicity? Is, is that... So that was, that was always the story. Every single yeah. new mutation was going to be more deadly and more transmissible, and oh, oh let's all panic. Um, whereas, in reality, the differences between one variant and another are, have to be small. And they have to be small because a virus it only has a certain number of proteins and these proteins have to function. And so if you have mutations that cause a big change in shape to a protein, that protein won't work properly anymore and that virus won't go anywhere. So the ones that are actually managing to do anything can only cause tiny, tiny little changes so that the virus can still function. Um, so you know, the, the, the idea that it can be very different to anything that went before is just, it never can be, it can never be very different. 
But what people got very distracted by was the fact that it did seem to be, each one did seem to be more transmissible. Mm. Now, this was quite interesting, and it was Will Jones that really kind of got to the bottom of this. That if you looked at the percentage of people in a household that contracted the infection like we talked about before, yeah. that number was higher at the beginning of a wave, and it fell through the course of a wave, and at the end of the wave it was lower. And then the next one comes along and it does exactly the same transition. But of course, if you're measuring it at the point in time, you're seeing a high one at the beginning of a wave for the new one and a low measure at the end of the wave for the old one. And you can always make the argument that it's more transmissible, even though it's starting at exactly the same point that the previous one started. Yeah. So was Omicron more transmissible? Have I, have right, been... well, that's a great question. And I don't think it was. So that wow. first <laughs> wow. Omicron, yeah. the first yeah. Omicron uh, started off with that same 10%, right? This is the only yeah. Omicron wave they've ever given us that number on, but it was the same yeah. 10% overall of the household were susceptible. So if you've got the same number of people who are susceptible, then um, what we saw was a, was a much more sudden surge, right? And so there was, it, it was sort of, that makes it look like it was more transmissible. But what we also know is that the period between contacts and infections went right down to shorter, three days. Yeah. Yeah. And so once you've got a much, much shorter period for people developing infections, that will cause a much more rapid surge. But the point is that the size of the spike is basically the same. The number of people affected isn't loads more, just happens quicker because it just happened quicker. Um, so yeah, it was different, but I don't think it was way more transmissible. Um, the, one of the other big differences with Omicron is that it stayed much more in the upper airways. It was yeah. more cold yeah. than a lung infection. For, for sure. Um, was there any stage in the pandemic where a virus became more deadly? I mean, what, what, was Delta more deadly than the original Wuhan strain or was it more deadly than the Alpha strain or was the Alpha strain more deadly than the Wuhan strain? So I, I find this much, much harder to unpick, actually. And I think, again, if you just go back to first principles and say, OK, so you're suggesting that you've mutated the virus a little bit and changed the size of the proteins a little bit, and then loads of people died more. Like, well, well, what about that bit? What about that last bit of the argument? How are you going from a slightly different protein sequence to lots more people dying? What was it about that protein sequence, that protein shape, that caused more people to die? And I just don't quite get that last bit of the puzzle. You know, the ways people died of this were the same. And I don't think that a, a little mutation here and then the protein has massively changed how people died. They died the same ways they ever did. I do think there was a problem with alpha, but I don't think the problem was entirely the virus. So if you look at, um, if you look at the proportion of people in nursing homes in America who died per case, then you've got a problem early on when they weren't testing. But if you just sort of look from summer 2020 when the testing was up and running in nursing homes and they were doing it quite thoroughly, then what you see is when the vaccine rollout happened, you've got a much higher um, deaths per case in that period. And what was interesting about that is they did it quite late in America. So they'd had their peak deaths in January, but the peak deaths per case in nursing homes was in February of 2021. And then it falls right down um, much, much later. So there was something going on there. I think when we were, when we were injecting people who were already quite vulnerable, 
and their immune systems became very occupied with dealing with all of the spike being made around their body. Then when their immune systems are occupied, it can't be fighting off, you know, doing the day job. And so what we also know actually in that period just after injection is that people are more susceptible to other viruses or other viruses that would dormant reactivate um, and that the mortality rate from COVID was higher generally in the population as well. So there is a period just after vaccination when people are much, much more vulnerable to catching and dying of COVID. And, and that's, you know, you see that in the data from lots of different angles. So I think that distorted the view about the alpha variant. People were th looking at that and saying, oh, it's a more deadly virus. Well, I don't think it was a more deadly virus. Interesting. And um, the immune system, the natural innate immune system, the acquired immune system is absolutely wonderful and brilliant, but it's not a great multitasker, is it? Well, it kind of likes to do one thing at a time. Yeah, yeah, it has a capacity. It has a capacity. And, and, and so what you see is that people who've been um, injected with a Pfizer, this is Pfizer's own data, the lymphocytes, which are the white, so one of the types of white blood cells that circulate in your blood, and the blood levels of these lymphocytes went through the floor for a few days. And then it starts to recover. They sort of measure it at day three. And you're like, well, how low did it go? Because by day three, you might be back on the recovery path. Um, but those lymphocytes, you know, were in tissues probably. So they're not in the blood anymore. They're in the tissues dealing with all of this spike production. Right, right. So there's a lymphopenia after the Pfizer vaccine, a mm. reduction in the number of lymphocytes. Because the lymphocytes were busy trying to beat up all this protein that was being produced. Well, which exactly. we now know is all over the body. Yeah, and, and the thing is, that was the entire design of the, of the so-called yeah. vaccine. The design was to mimic the virus, cause a cell to produce a foreign protein. The immune system will then see that cell as foreign and kill it. And then the immune system would learn how to do that for if it happened in real life. There were aspects of that that went terribly wrong. Like, you know, we would, it was sold as staying in the arm and staying oh, yeah. in the muscle and of course it didn't and so there are cells all around the body that were being killed by this mechanism by this very design yeah so cells all around the body will be producing this spike protein and, and the uh the cytotoxic t-cells will be basically eradicating those cells killing your own body cells yes and you know if they did that in the arm and if it was a small number of cells and you've got a sore arm so it's no big deal really yeah, and in the, and the end result was your immune system was educated in a way that was helpful, then all of that would not have been so bad. But each of those parts were problematic. That's the problem. You know, each of those things went wrong. If you're making spike protein in the vascular endothelium of the coronary arteries, it's a rather different prospect to making it in a... Yeah, and I think, I mean, that's the key point, isn't it? That we know that this... We do know that the lipid nanoparticles went all around the body. They were designed to because they were designed as a way of having gene therapy. So if you've got children who are missing a gene, that gene's missing from all around the body. So you want lipid nanoparticles to get the gene everywhere. It's so not it's, what we were told, though, isn't it? It's just... well, no, but they, it is what they knew. They knew that's what lipid nanoparticles yeah, were designed yeah. to do. But it was not what we were told, absolutely. Yeah, move on from that because I'll just get cross. Um, or you'll get banned. Yeah, yeah, just so, I'm just outraged, totally mm. outraged. Um, so you, you mentioned in this chapter, Claire, that viruses don't really want to kill people. What did you mean by that? Okay, so um, a virus, and, and actually just, just before we go on to this, just a mm. little touch on 
please. I've heard lots of people saying there's no such thing as the virus, right? The virus is a lie. And, uh, and I think it's a really important debate to be had. So I'll just touch on that. Please. Because, you know, I, I do think it's important to, to debate anything. And um, we have, as biological beings, a replication system. You know, that the, all of our cells are born from another cell and mm. our, our nucleic acids replicate. When you've got a system like that, you will have viruses. Like that's just like that just is what happens in replication systems when you've got code being replicated. It's why we have computer viruses. So like, in principle, it would be very strange not to have viruses around. And the, what we understand about viruses is incomplete, right? As all of science is, there are, there are missing parts of the picture, but there's all sorts of aspects of the picture that we do understand and that, that are evidence for support of a virus model. So, you know, people who share the same environment become ill at the same time. Mm. And we you know we have evidence of this RNA sequence that these people are way more likely to test positive for than people who are otherwise healthy. Um, and then we have evidence of the protein that that RNA produces that matches up with that sequence that you can detect using antibody testing, which is what you have on those LFT tests that the plastic ones people use at home. Um, and then you have those same people developing antibodies to that protein over the course of a few days, um, which remain in their blood. Um, and then you can look at, you know, there's all sorts of there's all sorts of little pieces of information which go towards supporting that model. And it might be that that model is somewhere in some way flawed. But until people can produce another model that explains it all, then it's just pointless. Like arguing about this isn't perfect evidence. It's, it's, you know, it might not be perfect evidence, but without another model of how the world works, we're sticking with this model. It does make sense because we, we, we know the sequences of the RNA bases. We, 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 we know that those th three of those sequences, it's called a codon, isn't it? Three of those sequences code for a particular amino acid. We do get these strings in a particular order. And the thing that convinced me the virus exists, we've got photographs of it. <laughs> the electron micrographs seem seem uh, pre pre pretty convincing to me. Yeah. I, 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 some people are not convinced by the electron micrographs. They think that those are just exosomes that, have, that are just, you know, I mean, and you know... You, you I think we want to fringe material there, really. I we mean, really so. are. And there's also yeah. the crystallography studies where they're actually looking at the shape of the receptors and yeah, how yeah. they match to the ACE2 receptor on a human. And, you know, once you're on that level of... of fine detail i think that yeah i mean I, i'm personally satisfied that robert koch's postulates are are met um so koch's postulates are the bacterial ones so the, the, i can't the rivers it's rivers for, vi for viruses is, is it yeah only is because the virus what? cannot be on its own cannot be replicated yeah, on its own, yeah. so you've always I, got to have right, that's people. interesting because i thought i kind of thought it was koch's postulates because you can you can duplicate the virus in, in a appropriate cellular medium yeah, um, but with the bacteria, you you don't need another cell to do no, that. So that's no, that's no. the difference, really. But yeah, yes, yeah. and the, you know that work's been done on hamsters and on you know they they have gone through and done that that work. Mm. So anyway, so we, we can agree on the, the virus as an idea. I forgot yeah, yeah, what your yeah. question was. I've gone off. Ah, no, 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 no. The, the next one is: um, Do viruses want to kill people? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So so once you've got this idea that you've got, you know parasites essentially taking advantage of a replicant yeah. system then what advan the advantage of that parasite you know, what will cause what will cause viruses to succeed as it were obviously they're not they're not thinking they're not making a decision about what would work 
but you're going to see the most virus in a situation where they replicate the most. That's that's all it's about. It's just being able to replicate them. It, it's it's simple survival of the fittest, isn't it? It's yeah. Simple Darwinian evolution. Yeah. Well, so it's just simply they are there because they succeeded in replicating. So that's right. what gets them to succeed in replicating? Well, infecting lots of people works, and then those people infecting other people. That's all. It, there's the more infections. It's what it's all about when you're a virus and you don't want to kill the host or you don't want to make them really sick because a virus that makes a host really sick won't be as spready because they'll stop breathing and they'll it, it, it'll kill the patient it'll kill them, yeah. actually. and that what's interesting is that a lot of respiratory viruses have got a temperature trigger in their genetic makeup so that when they're too warm they switch off and they stop replicating and what that means is that they stay in the upper airways where they can replicate and if they go too far into the lungs they stop replicating because they don't want to or they don't want to i know giving them making them <laughs> yeah. animated again but yeah. you know, if they were to cause lung damage and heart damage and go systemic then there's a risk of killing the host and then they're not going to replicate so the viruses that do that don't survive as much the viruses that learn this genetic switch are the ones that we see because they're the ones that replicate the most yeah, I was blown away, but I didn't know that. I mean, I've been reading this kind of stuff and writing about it for the last 40 odd years now. I didn't know that. So, so you, have, you have viruses that can um, replicate in the upper airways where it's cold viruses, rhinoviruses, uh, coronaviruses indeed, um, where it's relatively cool. Yeah. But then when they go down into the lungs where they could infect the alveoli, kill the patient, then uh, the, the viruses don't survive in that warm environment mm. because in the past the viruses that did survive in that warm environment killed their patients from pneumonia therefore those viruses didn't replicate it's just yeah. quite and obviously that all amazing. fits in with the environmental factors doesn't it because yeah. if you you know if you're it's a hot sunny day then your upper airway breath is actually pretty warm as well and so you haven't even got that cold environment in the upper airways but once the weather outside is really cold then you've really got an environment that they love Yep, as we all know, to our costs, once or twice a year when we get when we get when we get terrible colds. Uh, I'm actually quite mischievous by nature, so I'm going to ask you a completely unreasonable question: Are viruses alive? Answer yes or no if you'd like to. No, they're not. They're not alive on their own. No. <laughs> no. 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 I, I, but I'm I, with you on I, that. I was in trouble the other day because I said something about antibodies killing the virus. Like, you yeah. can't kill something that's not alive. I'm like, okay, but you know, I think people understand the, the meaning that I'm trying yeah, to convey yeah, there. Yeah. If, if it's any help to Paul Nurse, uh, I think he's a Nobel Prize winner, director of the Crick Institute, he says viruses aren't alive unless they're actually physiologically active inside a cell and then they are alive. So, okay, okay, maybe I'll give you that answer next time. <laughs> his answer is yes and no, so I'm, I'm happy to go with that. Yeah. It's just one of these fun, fun things, really. Um, so just before we finish point five, a new variant spells doom. You, use of words and phrases, Claire. So um, one that I remember, and you do talk about, reasonable worst case scenario. What the heck is a reasonable worst case scenario? I think that that is just such a fundamental question because that phrase, it's such a fundamental question because that phrase is what got us into so much trouble back in 2009 with the swine flu pandemic where the modelers were using reasonable in a way that no reasonable person ever would. So they would use reasonable worst case scenario to mean 
the most extreme worst case scenario that was very unlikely to happen. Literally, that's the way they were using the term reasonable. And obviously nobody heard that, they heard reasonable. And so they were taking on board extreme, very, very unlikely predictions as if that was something we should be, you know, acting around and, and causing immense harm. And so after that swine flu pandemic, um, Dame Deirdre Hine did a government report on the uh, problems around it and the mistakes that were made and you know, what, what, how, what lessons should be learned. And in that she included that phrase as being really important that it mustn't be used in that way anymore, that you know, it has to be communicated more clearly. And likewise, the European Centre for Disease Control did their own report and they also came up with the importance of not using that phrase. Guess what? That lesson wasn't learned and they're still using it today. And they're using it to mean a sort of one in 20,000 year type event, you know, literally things that will not happen, things that don't happen. And you should not be briefing politicians about things that won't happen. And, and what's extraordinary, of course, is that their reasonable worst case scenario back in spring 2020 of half a million deaths is something that they're still defending to this day. Unbelievable, so yeah. It is unbelievable. And it's kind of the psychology of that I find really fascinating that you know, Neil Ferguson and Dominic Cummings are still talking about it as if it, that is what would have happened. What would have happened. And it's almost as if, you know, they, when they articulated it back in spring 2020 and they sort of put their name to it, they said, right, this is why we're doing this. This is what the risk is. Having done that and sort of, you know, it's become part of their identity. That yeah. number. This and would so have happened if we aren't so clever and, and intervened and saved all your lives. Be grateful. Yeah, well, that's exactly what Matt Hancock's still saying. Thank you, Mr. Hancock. Thank you so much. <laughs> what he'll say is, just because it didn't happen doesn't mean it wouldn't have happened. And it's thanks to all the things we did that it didn't happen. Um, yeah, and, and so I think there comes a point where you've said things in public and, and acted on them, even way more minor things than what Matt Hancock did, where it becomes very hard to say, that was wrong, and I should yeah. have done this. Well, it's, it's very hard to prove to prove the negative. You know, we, we, you know, mm. it's uh, it's hard to disprove what he's saying. I mean, it, I, I'm incapable of saying, uh, proving there is no Loch Ness monster. Um, you, know, mm. Mm. You, you know, it's very hard to prove a negative anyway. So, um, right, bless him. Well, um, the last belief I want to look at today, Claire, if you're happy just to do one more, um, if you test positive, you have COVID. Right. Simple so, statement. Yeah. So this is this is how I arrived in in looking at all of this stuff because I'm a diagnostician, right? Testing's mm. my area, and um, and I saw that there was a problem back in summer 2020 with the testing. And you know, medical tests are imperfect. They're pretty good, but they're all imperfect in their own way, and that's why you know we have doctors. <laughs> And it's why we have diagnostic experts within medicine as well, because otherwise everyone could just go and get tested and they'd know what was going on, right? So it's critical when you're testing that, first of all, you understand the likelihood of somebody having the problem in the first place. So, for example, if you do prostate cancer tests on old men then, and you find some positives, well, you might want to go and find out, you know, go a bit further, do biopsies, see if they've actually got it. If you do that same test on a bunch of schoolboys, you'll know that all of the positives are errors. So, you know, it really matters what population you're testing in the first place. So you have to be sensible about who you're going to test. Um, and then when you do test, you have to have a test that's 
going to give you a meaningful answer. So the meaningful answer we wanted in this situation was one of two different things, actually. There are two scenarios when you test. One is to say, is this sick person infected with COVID? Is it, is it COVID make, that is making them sick? And that's a separate question, which would require a slightly different type of testing. Yeah. And the other type of testing is, is this person infectious? Those are the two questions. And the way the testing was set up, it didn't answer that last one. It was set up so that it would say positive yeah. on the basis of three to four viral particles in the sample that was tested. Now, you can get three to four virus particles in a single aerosol in the air or a single aerosol in the lab. And then a, that sample could get contaminated and could come back as a positive. So that was a, that was a really crazy way to set it up. But I mean, I have some sympathy for uh, when you're setting up a new test yeah. for, you know, going to the wrong extreme. Right. So, you know, as in at the beginning, when we didn't know so much about what was going on and you wanted a test to find possible cases in a country where you thought there wasn't any disease yet then you might set it up to find anything, right? Anything, we just want to test it's going to pick anything up. But as soon as that's not the situation anymore, you have to adjust how you test it. Yeah. That's yeah. the thing. So yeah. I, kind of, I will forgive them for how they set it up, yeah. but not for not adjusting it afterwards. And it's, even then the idea that three viral particles is going to indicate that you are infected, infectious, and therefore need to be quarantined for however long period of time does seem a bit extreme, but. Um, it is extreme. And I think one of the, Massive problems here is the word infection, which mm. doesn't have a proper definition. And it's just so limiting. People use it to mean different things. So, you know, uh, if, you've, if you've got, uh, you know, if a virus is causing you to be ill, I think everyone can agree that's an infection. Yep. If a virus is replicated in your cells, but your immune system has dealt with it and you never have a symptom, shouldn't we give that a different word, right? That needs a different name. Yeah. If the virus is replicated in your cells, um, or, or sorry, if your virus has entered, but your immune system's dealt with it before it ever entered a cell, is that an infection? It was in your lung. Is that an infection? If it enters your airway, but never gets past the mucus layer, is that an infection? Well, I, I would say, say not. I would, I say, would not. say not, but it was being yeah. treated as if it was. So that's yeah. the fundamental problem is that people who had it in their airway were being called infected. And what that meant was that hospital testing was really distorted and intensive care testing was really distorted because you've got a virus in the air in an intensive care unit. And so, you know, if you're just repeatedly, often repeatedly testing these people, that's the other problem, that people were tested until it was positive and every negative before then was ignored as if that was the mistake. The single positive was treated as the ultimate truth. Yeah, I mean, intensive care units are generally one big room in hospitals. And uh, if there was one infected patient or one infected member of staff, that would be enough to have three or four viral particles, I would have said, in the respiratory mucosa of every patient and member of staff in, the, in that room. Yeah, I think that's probably true. And what's really like, scandalous about this is that the the original PCR protocol, and obviously people designed their own protocols, but this was an important protocol because it was the first one back in January 2020, written up by Christian Drosten, who's a sort of, he's a virologist in 
um, Germany, but he's a, you know, he was their sort of go-to science guy throughout the whole pandemic. Um, and he also ran a massive lab. So he had conflicts of interest right there. And then but there's all sorts of conflicts, to be honest. And he, um, he designed this test in a manner that was, was not conducive to accurate reporting. You know, it was everything was sort of set up to be, to produce as many positives as possible, yeah. essentially. Um, and then he got this paper published within 24 hours, you know, so there's no peer review process, just turned around like that. And then and there it was. And even more ridiculously, one of the companies producing these tests had already started shipping, like before this paper was out, it was, you know, it, they were shipping test kits almost before the sequence had come out of China. It's all I mean, it's all very, very ridiculous. But the point being, that he had commented in an interview about what happened with MERS. So do you remember back in 2013? Yeah, Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, 2009. Yeah, with camels meant to have been the source of the virus and it was mainly a problem in Saudi Arabia. It didn't really go global. And he was very critical about the way they were testing it, about how the media had hyped it up into this massive thing. And he says how, if they were testing a nurse who was on in the ward and had breathed in the air in the ward, you might swipe some virus from the, on the surface of the mucus and then say that she's positive when she's never going to develop a symptom, never be infectious to anyone else. So he absolutely knew the problems with testing in the manner that he was then advocating for. Yes, and, and, and people were testing positive for like weeks, weren't they? Um... Absolutely. This was, this was a massive problem that was... Focus on in summer 2020, people were, were people like Carl Hennigan, who's the central director, the director of evidence-based medicine in Oxford. He was really influential, actually, in making this problem go away. But there was an awful problem where people who had had an infection would keep testing positive for literally months afterwards. Yes. Yeah. And the official line was, well, that can't be true because, um, you know, RNA viruses don't hang around. RNA doesn't hang around naturally. So it can't be true. If they've positive for RNA, they must have got infected again and they need to be isolated and we need to carry on assuming this is real. Um, and it wasn't real. And the, in retrospect, what we know is that the viral RNA was in a proportion of people ending up in the DNA of the cells of their respiratory tract. And then what they were essentially waiting months for were those cells to die. They were literally waiting for the cells to die before they were going to test negative. And eventually that was accepted. And the NHS said, well, if you are a staff member and you've been infected, you mustn't test for 90 days. It started to become don't test for yeah. 90 days because it will just come back positive. But this situation was ruining people's lives. So the <laughs> story of um, three young British lads who went in summer 2020 to Italy to teach English and they ended up in an isolation in Florence where they were sort of down a corridor from each other and they could message each other on their phones but they only ever got to see each other when they were being tested again and they'd get tested again and all three of them kept coming back positive I don't know if it really was the situation that they were all positive or whether somebody was you know the person doing the testing was breathing out all over the swabs or something because you know, why is it all three of them every single time 
and they they were stuck there for a ridiculous length of time i think it was in prison might be another way to put it absolutely in prison would be another way to put it and they finally in the end they were only released by a sort of change of the rules they said well if you haven't had symptoms for this long and you've had one negative at some point then that will do or something and they let them out yeah, yeah they, fiddled, they, they, they fiddled it so they could release yeah them. i think they got yeah. bored of them after a while um, and release them and they managed to make it back into the UK literally days before a situation where they'd have been forced to isolate because it was just ridiculous it was awful they were treated really really badly indeed, indeed. Uh, at, the, at the time Claire I, I we were sort of told that people were testing positive for weeks or months because there were small RNA viral residues in cells uh, these cells were being replaced and basically sloughing off into you know because cells are being replaced all the time and it was these that were these these very small amounts of uh, rna residue that was being detected but what you're saying is um no there was actually reverse transcriptase well i think that is what actually was happening here so people kept talking about rna debris didn't they there were yes yeah that's that's what i believed until just this conversation yeah, and maybe or maybe it was a bit of both it might well have been a bit of both but i think what's important was the point you raised last time about the testing, which is that when you've got an RNA sequence, then when you are designing a test to say, you know, is this a virus? You don't want to see bits of RNA. So it's really important that you include testing, um, that you're testing for parts of the virus from one end to the very other end. And at the other end were the bits of the virus that had the replication sort of components because you want to know that it's able to replicate otherwise it's it's meaningless it's not oh it's, it's irrelevant if it can't replicate yeah. it doesn't matter yeah but the just, test was designed trouble. to have just um just test for parts of the sequence only at one end and it's at the wrong end so if you're going to test only at one end you want to test at the far end so you've had to you know you have to go all the way along the sequence you get to the far end think, okay we've got that bit there so that means that you know we must have had all of the bit along the way is it nobody would design a test like that? You it's like testing for toenail it. clippings, and if you find toenail clippings, it means they're people. It is exactly like, <laughs> it's exactly like that. Or it's like the sort of, you know, you're going to so the forensic DNA at some kind of crime scene, and you think you've caught them red-handed. Like, they're not there. They're not there. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Uh, last question, uh, Claire. Uh, P PCR was taken as the gold standard. Were, were there alternative testing tests that could have been used that, that humans know about? So, um, I, I think PCR as a first test makes a lot of sense, right? It right. makes sense because we've got labs that can very easily switch what they're testing for. Yeah. And so, they, you know, you've got the PCR, you've got the setup, you've got the staff, you just switch in the different sequence and you can get a test up and running very, very fast. Yeah. So, the test that you want to use is the protein test, you know, the kind of the sort of plastic lateral flow test that, mm. that came out from about summer 2020. And so from summer 2020, we should have really just moved to using those. At yeah. least if, you've, if you are sick in the community, I think that would have been a sensible go-to test to use. But the sensible go-to test to use in a hospital that never got used, despite the government having enormous capacity to use it, was antibody testing. Yes. So the thing is that by the time you're arriving in hospital, almost always, unless you're very frail, almost always, you've had over a week at home sick already. Be at that point, you've got antibodies. And you could do the antibody test and you could tell from the antibody test whether this was an acute or an old infection. 
and, and a different you, type of immunoglobulins would change yeah profile and you wouldn't have any of this nonsense about is it just something i just breathe in because i'm standing in a hospital you'd know what was going on in that yeah. patient specifically and it was yeah. just never done it would have been so easy if there's igms it's a new infection if there's yeah. iggs it's been there for a few days or a week yeah and also you get so an easy to at do the bedside yeah 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 you could just do it there there and then yeah but Quite it was incredible it was never used yeah so fair to say that pcr gave a few false positives um yeah i think that is fair to say now at one <laughs> point i was very loud about this and you know we were saying about the politicization of science this was the point at which i was not being heard and i was shouting louder and i started to exaggerate i think so i was saying that there were that there just a pure frustration pure frustration of not being heard um, yeah, I think it was, but it's not an excuse. You know, I do regret having done it. I did get it wrong. And um, I, was, I was concerned that in autumn 2020, I was concerned that essentially we were chasing our tails and that almost all the positives were false positives. And actually, I could still make that case very strongly for you, given other clinical data, you know, who's coming into A&E, how many people are seeing their doctors with a cough, all those sort of data points were saying nothing was going on. And it was just the testing that was creating this illusion of something really major going on. Um, <clears throat> but by the winter, you know, I think we did have COVID that winter. I think yes. there yeah, absolutely did. was COVID around. And when you look back at the whole sort of trajectory of a wave, then actually the number of people in the community with symptoms who tested positive was a pretty neat match for the number that then developed antibodies when you test blood donors randomly. So I think that overall, the community PCR testing was finding most of the people who were sick with COVID. And so, you know, I think that the problem lay in hospitals, swabbing people who were dying or dead, because at that point you're not fighting off virus, so you can test positive, <laughs> and asymptomatic people. I think those are the, where the false positive problem was largest. Um, and of course, the thing is, I don't think you need to test an entire community with PCR over the course of anything. That's a massive waste of money. And there, I haven't yet met somebody who said to me, I think I had COVID, my test was positive, but I wouldn't have known otherwise. Like everybody I've met knows they had COVID yeah. because of their illness. And if it wasn't their illness, it was the illness of their partner or someone yeah. else who'd yeah. been there at the time that was just so characteristic. You know, it was a slightly, it, I think it was characteristic. I, I have arguments with people who don't think it was, but I think it was characteristic enough. It lasted a lot longer than other infections. There's, there's a qualitative component, isn't it, that people yeah. know they felt different to other infections that they've had. Yeah, and there were some slightly weird symptoms associated with it. So one of the symptoms I had that I thought was really strange was eye pain when I looked sideways. That was a really odd symptom. Anyway, I mean, I, and then there's, of course, there's the loss of smell thing. People like, yeah, people always lost their smell with colds. So like, they didn't lose their smell for months. That's new. Yeah, so but when you look at it like that, you think, well, why did we have any testing at all? If people know, then why, why did we do all that? Why did we spend all that money? Yeah, the, the, it's the, the, the demigration of, of clinical diagnosis, really. Mm, mm, absolutely, and yeah. actually that was critical, wasn't it? Because in the past, um, you know, if you were gonna come up with a new diagnosis, you produce a sort of a, a list of symptoms that you think are characteristic of a syndrome. And then based on your understanding of this syndrome, 
start to try to think about the molecular biology yes. of it, come up with a test for it and see if you can find a test that will tell us more about what's going on here. But Once you've identified the problem in the real world, in the real clinical world. Yes, exactly. That will just help clarify for an individual whether they're part of that group or not. Yeah. But with this, it was completely inverted. So instead of a cluster of symptoms being the critical information with the test as icing on the cake, the test was it. If you were positive for that test, that was your answer. And of course, when that's inverted, the ridiculous thing happens where people who've got a positive test might have any, any and all sorts of symptoms, and then they all get attributed to being COVID just because they had a positive test when they had that symptom. And then you get the situation of, well, I haven't got any symptoms at all. And then that counts as well. Because that counts as asymptomatic. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 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 Which um, we're not going to get round to on this video. Um, but um, if uh, Dr. Craig agrees, we can do that on a future video. So you're going to have to stay tuned for that one. But we've covered uh, quite a few beliefs there, Claire. So thank you very much. Thank so, you. Uh, so it's great to have someone with your um, expertise and uh, who's followed this so with such a dedicated uh, amount of time and effort over over the entire course of the pandemic it does make sense get get the book you won't regret it and uh, well, i think you've got a substack as well claire have you i do have a substack yeah dr claire craig i am on substack and i i don't post on it as regularly as some people do but i'll i'll put little pieces on now and again yeah we'll, um, we'll, put, we'll put the link on for sure okay yeah thanks. great Claire, th thank you so much. Um, uh, it's an hour and 20 minutes. I'm actually quite tired now. It's, it's pure concentration. So, <laughs> but it's fa fantastic stuff. It, and it's so, I just feel it's so important to get this documented now. And, um, uh, and that's what we've done. So thank you so much. All right. Thank you, John. See you next time. Yeah.